What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. And this episode, we, well, Amy, is going to talk all about design systems. So let's go and get into it. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton, and I'm the Director of Design at Zeal. Fancy. What's up, everyone? My name is James Quick, and I am a Staff Developer Advocate at PlanetScale. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we're joined by three fabulous sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. Zeal is a software consultancy, and they are hiring. And Dato CMS is a performant headless CMS. More from each of these later in the show. James, what have you been up to? <laughs> I just got back from... A uh, quick run. Once you're in like a running training season, that will be all I talk about. I will have always <laughs> just gone for a run every time we record. But it was like 34 degrees. And then I went to Best Buy to pick up the case for my new iPad that Planet Scale bought me. I don't remember the name of the case, but assuming I like it, I'll probably pick it in the next couple of episodes. But it's got a keyboard and it's detachable, so you can take the iPad off and kind of use it by itself without the keyboard, too, which is pretty cool. Other than that, just another day at work today enjoying it living the dream living the dream that's right <laughs> that's every day for me what about you amy what are you up to oh nothing fancy you're talking about running i'm almost to the point of no return because you know i signed up for that half in april and i still have not really started training for it <laughs> so it's about to the point where if i don't train i'm gonna be in trouble <laughs> so you gotta get on it yeah and put it off as long as possible well, there's a higher chance we may do that one where Jess is not going to run the full marathon in Little Rock just because her and my sister have had trouble finding time to train. So we are potentially going to do the half in Nashville. So maybe we'll be there together yeah. if that gives you any extra motivation or maybe that gives you motivation not to do it because you don't want to. No, it gives me more <laughs> motivation. You'll probably be faster than me, but I did sign up with a friend, so I can't let my friend down. So I am committed beyond just myself. Sometimes it's all it takes is yeah. one person that you can't give up on. Yes, for sure. Well, let's get into it. So today we're going to be talking all about design systems. And I do want to point out that this episode is by request. We had a friend slash stranger. <laughs> <laughs> Friends and strangers alike on the internet. On Twitter request this when we were doing our goals for 2022 and talking about our plans. So here it is, an episode all about design systems. So I thought we'd start off by talking about what is a design system. James, <laughs> you want to tell us what a design system is. <laughs> is this the point in the episode where I'm supposed to like make up something? Because it's interesting. I think you've got notes down here that we'll get to in a little bit, which is the difference between a design system and a style guide and a pattern library, which is something I've never heard about. So I'm excited to hear your explanation of that. I think from a very naive designer perspective, from more of an actual developer's perspective, I think of just having rules for how things look and feel and how components interact for the things that we build. That's something I've talked about time and time again. It would be so much easier for me to build something if someone just gave me this set of rules that I have to abide by. That's one of the reasons I enjoy Tailwind CSS because they've already kind of got those rules in place with the different font sizes, the spacing that sort of stuff. But other than that, I'm going to back out and I'm going to let you tell us what a design system actually is. That's actually a great example is Tailwind because I think of a design system is not that far off. I don't know. I might get shot down. We might hear about it on Twitter. It's not that far off than say like a programming React component library that you have to work with. A design system a lot of times will give you the Legos somewhat, I use that term loosely, that you can use to create a site. So a big part of design systems is all about scale. So when you start having multiple designers work on a project, you want it to feel consistent like the same designer has been working on it. So a lot of it is about consistency. You're not only going to have a stronger design, but your code is going to be cleaner because you're going to be creating these components that are consistent. So if it's a consistent code, you're not having to create all these edge cases within your code. So it's a stronger design and it's cleaner code. And you specifically mentioned for building websites, but I do just want to call out slash ask and clarify this. This is more than just websites, right? Like this is 
mobile apps or general experiences, or it gets into print and magazines and things like that. Like this is kind of anything that a company or a brand might need for that consistency that you just talked about. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can have a brand style guide. You can even have a copy style guide where you talk about voice and consistencies and things like that. But there's one client that I'm working on in particular right now where they have a marketing style guide and then they have a separate like product design style guide. And they're similar because obviously you want that brand to feel cohesive, but you're going to approach things differently. What I do in print is going to be slightly different than what I might do on the web because it's a different medium. It's a different use case. But you do want those things to be working together in conjunction. So some of the benefits to using a design system is that you can prototype things faster. You can iterate faster. You can also improve the usability because you want to create expectations with the user so they know when I do this, this is going to happen and it's going to act consistently throughout the site, whether that's colors or state or rollovers or things like that. All that can be included within the design system. But it's also going to improve accessibility because you want to make sure that you're optimizing your components for people with disabilities or slower internet speeds. So it takes all those things into consideration. And that just takes out the guesswork, right? Especially with the accessibility aspect, which I think so many people are not very well versed in and have a lot to learn, including myself. You know, if those components are already made in an accessible way that I can just go and kind of drop in, you mentioned these Lego blocks or Lego pieces, that's going to save me the worry of making sure that I'm doing things right. Because if that's already been vetted, if that stuff has already been taken into account, then I can just drop those in. That's right. And some people would argue that a design system is going to remove creativity. I would argue that it's a different type of creativity, that a lot of times creativity is all about setting those boundaries and knowing which parameters that you can work within. So the design system is about setting those things so that you can focus on different and sometimes harder, maybe even more complex problems. Something you've also referred to in the past is knowing what the rules are so that you know (laughs) when to break them. And I don't know exactly how this fits in, but I imagine there's some little bit of leeway where the design system is constantly evolving, right? Like things change, you find out you've got new needs and you realize that there's maybe a lack of creativity that you're allowing people to have. So maybe that influences an evolved version of the design system to give people that flexibility to start to create some more creative and unique experiences. That's right. And I would argue that a design system is really a living document. It is going to evolve as your users' needs change, as your design requirements or your project requirements or the business requirements, all that changes. Your design has to be able to evolve to meet those requirements. Just question for you, just real world, what does this look like for you at Zeal or what does this look like for you inside projects or freelance projects? I mean, that you've worked on. What phase does this come into play? What phase do you start to think, hey, we need this sort of thing? What has that process been like for you in the past? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of times, just the clients that I'm working with, I'm actually creating a design system as I'm creating the design itself. So that almost serves as documentation for future projects or I'm establishing my rules as I go and trying to make sure that I abide by my own rules that I'm creating. But the client that I actually mentioned earlier, it's a very large client. And so one of the things that we're working on right now is creating a design system that will go across multiple business units so that all of it looks consistent. And so the phrase that's been used there is, are you a brand of brands or a house of brands? So you can think of that like Johnson & Johnson, for example, has tons of baby brands that you probably don't even realize are owned by Johnson & Johnson. You might even say something like Budweiser, where they have Budweiser Light or Budweiser itself, or Disney is kind of a brand of brands, but you have Disney, you have Disney Junior, you have Disney HD. So you can see that the benefit there is you can either try and build up all these sub brands or you can allow the brands to speak into other areas. Actually, you know what? Virgin might be a good example because Virgin has their name on multiple products across multiple different use cases. Virgin Records, Virgin Airlines. Okay. There was another one I saw recently. Oh, the hotels. I believe they have a brand of hotels as well. Mm-hmm. So I've been listening to an audiobook by Richard Branson, who's behind the Virgin brand. And he was talking about how he's one of the few brands in the top, whatever, Forbes, that 
they really do try and carry that virgin label across multiple different verticals, not just a single vertical. But part of that is they want to communicate, hey, when you get a virgin cell phone, we're going to offer you the same quality experience that you would expect from our airline. And so trying to play off that brand, it just has to do with a different strategy. Anyways, so all that's to say, there's a style guide that goes across multiple business units. If you're trying to consolidate all of your brands, you want that to be consistent so that the experience feels consistent. And in that case, a lot of times there's an existing style guide that you are having to use and apply. You have an existing style guide that you have to apply to your design. Let me take a brief moment and talk about the company that I work for, Zeal. They actually sponsor our podcast. They design custom applications and develop primarily in Rails and React. They're a remote first company. Even before the pandemic, they're based out of Southern Oregon, but I live outside of Nashville and we have team members across the entire country. But Zeal holds a special place in my heart because as I mentioned, I work there, but I can honestly say it's the best place that I've ever worked. And good news for you, they are hiring. So you could work with me. In particular, we are hiring a senior UI UX designer and front end developer. I'm pretty stoked about this position because you'll be on my team. We have some really fun initiatives planned for 2022, so you get to be a part of that. In general, our whole setup is pretty unique. So you can find more information on the website, codingzeal.com. And of course, I'll include a link in the description below. So one thing that might be interesting to talk about is what's the difference between a design system and a style guide and a pattern library. I think a lot of those terms are often used interchangeably. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that we are kind of talking about UI Legos here that can be assembled, but it's important to understand that you also have to take into consideration how, why, and when. So when you reach for certain components over others, why you might reach for certain components over others, and how each of those components relate to each other. So ideally, in your design system, you're going to explain all those use cases, not just say, hey, here's the component. So I feel like it would be a miss if we talked about design systems and didn't talk about Brad Frost. So Brad Frost is kind of the mastermind behind this term atomic design, if you've heard that. But it's the idea that you start with atoms and then from those you can build molecules and then organisms and then templates and then pages. So if you want to think about it, an atom would be like an individual label or an individual input field, or an individual search button. And then a molecule would be how all of those elements fit together to display a search feature. So you want to know how they relate, how much padding is around that label before you see the input. You want to talk about the alignment and the spacing. Then from there, an organism is how you combine each of those individual molecules together. So for example, how does that search component fit into the header itself? Is it aligned on the right? Does it span across the entire header? what happens at different breakpoints. And then a template is where you start to talk about a basic page structure. So you start assembling all those organisms together. And then a page itself is, well, the actual page. So you have a home page or an about page. And sometimes you might have different nuances within each of those pages. So you're just starting to build these blocks together, these UI Legos as we're referring. How do they build together to create a page itself? This reminds me of BIM syntax. Is that how you Mm -hmm. say it? Yep. In CSS, and it's for people who have not heard of this, you could probably articulate this better, but there's this breakdown of you've got a component, and then you've got a piece of a component, then you've got a variation of that piece of a component. Is that right? And there's like a naming convention for how you do that in CSS so that you have some consistency about how you refer to things. Yeah, that's right. So BIM stands for Block Element Modifier which is exactly what you were describing. So in between your blocks and your elements, those are going to be separated by double underscores. And then your modifiers have double dashes. So you might say header, double dash left, header, double dash right, to specify what goes on the left and right side. But you can easily use those to describe what we're talking about with atomic design. And the cool part about this is it takes a lot of things that we've used on the developer side and almost applies it to the design side. So instead of thinking of it as a cohesive page, you start to break these down into individual design elements, which is what developers have been doing for years. That's one of the cool things when we have conversations of recognizing these overlaps between development and design, but really just so many other things in the world of them just getting big to the point where they need structure. You think about Mm -hmm. naming conventions for files in a project. If you're in an XJS project, you've got a pages directory 
inside of that, you have API, you have a components directory, then you have a styles directory. Like you have this breakdown in organization that people can agree on because as things get bigger, you need to have that organization. So it's a similar reasoning behind all the things that you're talking about, I think, as you start to build more and more things and build bigger things at scale with more people being involved. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is that there's an underlying language that goes on between design and developers. But the end of the day, clients really don't care about atomic design. They don't care about these individual components and how these standalone patterns work together, but they do love seeing the output and how everything works together with all the components put together to assemble that page. Okay, so let's talk about some of the specifics behind this. And actually, if you are a newsletter subscriber, in this week's newsletter, you'll see a little lead magnet there that has a checklist of all these pieces and parts that you might want to include. So if you're not part of the newsletter, it's a good opportunity for you to join the list. You can go to compress.fm and get this checklist. And I'll give my teaser of the day. I think we saved my quirky pick for today because we took it out of editing for the last episode. So I've got an interesting pick that I will send you a picture of that you can include in the newsletter. Uh. For anybody that wants to see. So a little tease for the pick coming later and then the picture coming in the newsletter. So go and sign (laughs) up the newsletter for the extra tidbits and links and details and pictures and stuff and the the newsletters that come out. And also, actually, this is another incentive on top of that to join the (laughs) newsletter is that the company Envision wrote a fantastic ebook all about design systems. So I'll include a link to it. Obviously, I don't want to give that away because that's their thing. But I'll include a link to their ebook in the newsletter. So another reason to sign up for the newsletter. And let's take a minute and talk about Vercel. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. We're actually hosting the Compress.fm site and my personal site, selfteach.me on Vercel. They also power more well-known sites like Twilio, but you can use them for e-commerce, travel, news, and marketing sites. You name it, they can host it. When I got ready to launch the compressed site, it was super easy. I pointed it to the GitHub repository and told it what folder my next.js project was in, and then it just worked. Ridiculous, right? But they also power over 30 plus Jamstack frameworks, including Create React App, Next, Nuxt, Vue, Ember, Svelte, Angular, Hugo, and Gatsby, just to name a few. But one of my favorite features is when you set up your account, you get your own dashboard, And here you can invite other team members to collaborate or view analytics. So as soon as I push the code to my GitHub repository, it deploys that code and I can watch the build and its entire process through their custom dashboard. So be sure to check out Vercel. I'll include a link in the show notes, but special thanks to Vercel for being a Compress.fm sponsor. Some of the specifics here, you want to consider space, grids, and layouts. And we've talked about these before in different episodes, but a huge part of this is negative space, which you don't necessarily think about as being part of the design system, but you do want to make sure that you have consistent spacing in between all of your elements. I will usually work off a 12 column grid. And the reason being is that it's easily divisible by two, three, and four. So it makes it easy to have whatever dimensions you need within your design. And Kind of as a subdivision of that, I'll use a four or an eight point grid. And the reason being is 16 pixels equals one rim. So if you're using rims in your code, it's easy to use that quarter rim system and everything feels nice and tight. And actually, we mentioned Tailwind earlier. Tailwind uses that same measuring system. Yep. I've seen this be really useful in just designing in like Figma or something, having those grid lines showing you always want to leave a certain amount of space on the outside of your content, for example, and you can leave one grid spot or however many on the outside of your content by having those lines. It just gives you that structure. And then it does kind of, as you have a grid system, you can just pick and choose and drop your blocks in the right spot, hopefully. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the same thing extends to iconography. So I'll use consistent sizes with that. So I'm either using 16 pixels, 24 pixels, 32 or 64. So and those are just magic computer numbers. 16, 24, 32, 64. Here's my request for you is to do like the most standard style guide that you could come up with and Mm -hmm. put it out as a lead magnet on the newsletter. Oh, that's a fun challenge. I think that'd be cool. I would use it too. Challenge accepted. Well, yeah, you know me. I'm so competitive. (laughs) Done. But... (laughs) It's also like what makes a design system, like a style guide system, feel good or unique is those... Being customized. 
Yeah. Yeah. But what I could do is create a template. So we mm-hmm. have that checklist as our lead magnet here. If I basically set up all those components as a mm-hmm. lead magnet, and then you just work through Figma to update all of the mm-hmm. components, you're building out that style guide. You got me sold. Actually, I would appreciate that in my own work. This <laughs> is <laughs> a starting point. Also, I will challenge you oh, with, I mentioned consistent sizes with iconography, 16, 24, 32, 64. You need to make a wrap out of that. <laughs> a wrap out of just that one line of I mean, you can incorporate other sizes. things. But All right. just, okay. I'm kind of envisioning schoolhouse rock. Okay. I will think about it. I haven't done one in a while. I wrote just a song for Christmas. You told me but, that, yeah. which is so sweet. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't think she would want a rap, though, about 16, 20. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not the one for her, no. Oh, goodness. Okay, so. Typography? Typography. I would say, in general, if you can limit yourself to two fonts, maybe a sans serif and a serif. If you don't know what those are, sans means without. So without feet is what that means. You can think of Arial Helvetica. Those are sans serif type faces serif is like times new roman or georgia that comes from more of a print background but usually you can get those to complement each other and then as you're trying to figure out sizing for your typography a lot of times i like to work within the fibonacci sequence which makes it really nice and easy to figure out what your sizes need to be so for example if you want to start with 16 point font so that goes back to your one rim And then the Fibonacci sequence says, if you add the first value and the second value together, that's what you get for the third value. And so you just pick the next size up. Say you want to do 16 pixels and 18 pixels. Then the next size up is going to be. This is the moment I was waiting for. Oh, man. Aiming to do math. 34. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I had to cheat. (laughs) So anyways, if you add 16 plus 18, then you get 34. And then the next size, you would add 18 plus 34 to get the next size. I'm not doing it. <laughs> nice. I love how you conveniently overlooked the number. Oh, goodness. Okay. The next one I have on the list is imagery. And it's important just to have a consistent treatment with that. So if you're going to use, say, all black and white images, do that. Or maybe it's a common image style. So you have all candid shots. Or maybe it's all cheesy stock photography. But you just want to make sure that it's consistent and doesn't feel like you just hacked something together or rated your Google image search. I will say, I think images, just from a design perspective, is one of the things that makes the biggest difference. I'll give a shout out here to Ken Jones, who's in the Discord. I can't remember his handle right offhand. Ken Jones Pizza, maybe. He's got something about pizza, but he built birdables.com, be like bird and then ables, A-B-L-E-S. And he created these cards for different birds. And the images just look amazing. The site already looks good, but it makes the whole thing just look incredible. So images, I think, are one of those things that is very noticeable. Even if you've got a good design feel and you build something and you don't really have the images to match that, it really kind of throws it off. So the images tying it all together gives it that pop, gives it the consistency, pulls everything in together and helps make a bigger difference, I think. You don't realize until you see it done right, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a great point. It's almost like garbage in, garbage out. I mean, not to put it in negative terms, but some of my favorite sites that I've designed was for a speaker's like boutique. And they went out and had professional photography mm-hmm. done for all of their clients and felt like some of the strongest sites that I've designed just because I had fantastic assets mm-hmm. to work with. And yep. a lot of other times I feel like I'm just trying to make stuff up. And it is hard to get a consistent image style unless it is coming from say the same photographer someone that knows yeah exactly yeah. it almost seems wild or wasteful to me to pay for something like that but the more i've paid attention to that level of detail for stuff that other people have put together you start to really appreciate that it does make a really big difference and i've got one aside here from like a personal growth perspective, I guess Mm -hmm. you mentioned like not to be negative. I think it was on TikTok actually, where someone was trying to change their language. So if they're late for a meeting, instead of saying, Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm late saying, thank you for your patience or thank you for Mm -hmm. waiting for me. So you're instantly bringing positivity and appreciation to the table versus negativity. And I saw that TikTok and the next day, someone joined me at work at a meeting late and she came on and said, thank you for your patience. And I was like, I just saw that and I'm trying to pay attention and do that. And she was like, yeah, me too. And I was like, this is great. This is so much, 
so much happier of an experience. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I'll have to remember that. I like that yeah. a lot. It's a cool, subtle twist, I think, of just making sure that your mind maintains a level of positivity no matter what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not so much even as your mindset, but just setting the context and the tone for everybody else around you. Yep, exactly. So you mentioned with imagery, the style you talked about could be black and white, or maybe you have some certain color effects, and then you've got some other pieces in here for illustrations and textures. What are some of the other pieces that can kind of tie the images together? Yeah, I think illustrations is an easier one, but it's still also, this is being negative, (laughs) easy to get wrong. (laughs) But when you're looking at images, so I love the Noun Project or flaticons.com. There's some great resources on there and I'll include links to both of those in the newsletter. Hey, (laughs) but you want to make sure that you're using consistent stroke width there or even just consistent styles. Because if you have all these different icon styles or illustration styles, that's going to show that you might not know what you're doing. (laughs) So that's something that you want to include in your style guide to make sure that everything is consistent across the board. This also extends to textures. If you have, say, a paper background or grid or if it's a solid, if it's a flat color, you want to make sure those are consistent your gradients are consistent, that you're going from one color to the next color consistently, that they're on the right angle. But these things with imagery also get extended down to, are you using rounded corners? Are you consistent with the roundedness of that box? Does it match throughout the site? Or are you using motion? Is the motion movement cohesive or sound? I don't use sound on a lot of my sites, but if We're talking about applying these things to more than just a website. Sound might be a thing if you're looking at video. And even at All Zero, working with a marketing team, they were investing some pretty serious dollars in a professional agency to tie sound together with our content. Another example of sound on a website, Jason Langstorff's website, Mm -hmm. jason.af, I think. He has this great just tying in these ridiculous sound effects that he obviously made himself that are just really cheesy, but so well put together and fit the intricacies of his site. That's a really good example that people should check out as well. Or, I mean, if you have an iPhone and you're in the Apple ecosystem, mm-hmm. there's certain sounds that I associate with my phone or with oh, my yeah. computer that are specifically Apple that you wouldn't hear on a PC. So all of that sound design is part of branding. Mm-hmm. So maybe one of the most prominent things in terms of branding is also color. So you want to make sure that you're including your brand colors within your design system, as well as any state colors to show errors or warnings or information. And then on top of that, how those colors pair together, because you might have colors within your style guide that clash against each other. So you want to be cognizant of that. And of course, accessibility, because not all people can see all colors. So you want to think about how that gets displayed and interpreted and communicated. Yeah, I'm glad we're able to find yet another place to tie that in. Because again, somebody that really studies and is really into the science behind accessibility with colors can already articulate, get this kind of background, you'll put this color text on top of it and vice versa, have those colors have high enough contrast and etc. to make sure that they are accessible. So by the time I have to build something, I've already got those rules in place. So I don't have to figure that stuff out myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And now it's time to take a second to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Dato CMS. Dato CMS is a complete and performant headless CMS built to offer the best developer experience and user friendliness in the market. One of the things I think is really interesting and neat on their website is if you hover on their Why Dato CMS tab in the nav bar, you see sections for developers, digital markers, and content creators. So it's got the entire audience covered. They also provide a rich CDN-powered GraphQL API with real-time updates, which is really neat. So all of you who love working with GraphQL and are looking for something that has real-time updates, this is really, really cool. They also provide a super flexible way to handle dynamic layouts and structured content and then have best in-class image and video support with progressive image loading out of the box. So if you're looking for a headless CMS that can help represent every member of your team, make sure to check out Dato CMS. If you're looking for a few examples, we already mentioned Tailwind. I listed Bootstrap just because that's probably the earliest example I can think of of a design system really becoming popular. 
But Google Material Design is a fantastic resource. Whether you like Google's system or not, the way that they've documented everything is worth taking note, but also they've tested everything quite a bit. So sometimes their patterns, even if you don't implement it to the nth degree, just recognizing how they go about creating different components is worth looking into. And then there's a couple galleries. So if you go to styleguides.io, there's a bunch that they've listed out. MailChimp has a great one, Atlassian, Airbnb, Shopify, Salesforce. They all have fantastic design systems and they made them available online. Like I said, I'll include links to all that within the show notes and the newsletter. So once you have all of these things, you've talked about all these pieces and components, where does all of this stuff actually live? And a lot of the stuff that I do online, obviously you can make the finished product available online for your entire company or for the world to see. But as we're developing these, we work within Figma. So I've done it two ways inside Figma. You can have it as a separate page in your single file where you're pulling all of your components from that page, or you can create a separate file. And the cool thing about Figma is you can actually link those pages together and publish that library so that you can use it within multiple different files. And then anytime you make that change, then you publish it and you can update any of those other files based on those changes that you've made to that single source of truth. That sort of stuff is really interesting to me. I've never had that level of organization for any of the things I've done in Figma, but I just love the idea of that. You have these components that are reused all over the place, just like your code would be. You can change them and update them in one centralized place and everybody gets the latest version throughout the different pages and components and things that they're working on. Yeah, for sure. And there's options within Figma to set up variants or be able to swap different components out based on that sizing and padding and all that. So it's all part of that greater design system that we're talking about. All for the greater good. Now, I'd say if you don't have a current system, I would start by taking an audit of all the pieces that you have. So get a good idea of all the components that you have to work with, and then you can start making decisions about which components you want to cut, which components you want to keep. From there, you can create a visual design language around all of the pieces and parts that we've talked about. And when you mentioned components, just to give some examples here, this would be like header text, subheader text, your body copy, your buttons, your navigation, like images, cards, things like that would be the components that you'd be looking for to kind of document with what you already have. Like you said, see if there's anything to cut, see if there's anything you need to add, and then just have the build rules around the stuff that you kind of already have in place. And I think as people start to do that and start to audit, especially if I were to do this on my sites, I would realize how much inconsistency there would be in terms of spacing and rounding borders and stuff because you end up i do something one day okay that looks good that looks right and then i come back a month later and i do something it's like okay that looks good but those two things don't necessarily match up so if you do your audit and just check to see how those things are different and decide on those rules then again the point that we've been making over and over again it's easy for you to replicate that in the future because now you've got that set of rules that you can follow that's right One of the hardest things that I've found is if you have a design system that has lasted over time, because like I said, it's a living document. So as it continues to evolve, even if you have a design system, might be worthwhile to still do that audit and find places that may have leaked out of place or changes that you've made and you didn't go back and change previous designs. So kind of talking a little bit about design debt. We talk about tech debt and things that need to be upgraded. There's a design debt piece of that. As you update and evolve your design system, you want to make sure that you bring previous pieces and parts in line with that. Yeah. Again, going back to the Tailwind conversations, that's one of the benefits of Tailwind is if you're just writing CSS yourself, you can easily go with writing some CSS not use it the next time around and then just forget that that CSS is there not even being used. And there's tools that you can use to go through and kind of audit your site to see what CSS you could potentially get rid of that's not being used. But with Tailwind, if you take out a class, then that class is no longer shipped to production during the purge because it purges any of the original Tailwind classes that you're not referencing. Uh, So Tailwind kind of handles that concept automatically. But the point stands for exactly what you just said. You know, it never hurts to go through periodically and do an audit of your code to make sure that all the stuff you have that's there is actually needed. And if not, go ahead and rip it out. And you see people do posts and memes about this all the time. That's often they're much more excited about the number of lines of code that they're able to remove than the number of lines that they're actually adding to a project. Yeah, 
So two things talking about removing code. I did see a tweet the other day that was like, so if you're pair programming, then are you writing half the code that you normally would? And the response was, hopefully you're writing even less than that, which I loved. Because mm, you're both figuring out a more optimal way. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. So if you are interested, that actually might not be a bad place to start is to go look at Tailwind and specifically their UI components to see how they lay things out and how they structure a lot of their elements if you're trying to get an idea for how to structure your own design system. Okay, so if you have an existing design system and we're talking about maintaining it and you need to add a new component or even change an old component, one of the things that we do, talking about process, is first going to talk to a developer because they're the ones that are actually going to have to implement that. And a lot of times they might know certain use cases that you might not be familiar with that that component might affect and you want to be aware of that whenever you're making a design change. You also want to think through accessibility to know how that's going to be affected and just thinking through all the various breakpoints. So not only how this is going to look on a desktop, but how will it look in a mobile browser as well. So that's going to wrap up design systems. So we are going to go into the next segment of the show, which is one of my favorites, where we take questions from friends and strangers alike on the internet. So we have a few. And even if you didn't get a chance to ask your questions, be sure to tag us on Twitter and we'll answer those even post this episode dropping. <laughs> so we've got the first question is from our friend and fellow moderator in the Learn, Build, Teach Discord is Brittany Postma, who also has a design background. And she said that, you know, she has to be involved with this one <laughs> because of the design background, but she's got three things. What is the best way to get buy-in on your system from other teams? How do you future-proof your system from stack changes? And then three, how do you keep your systems linked together from design programs to the code? Oh, that's a good one. And I feel like these are just all common problems that we have. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is I believe, if I understand correctly, Brittany is currently working on creating her own design system within SvelteKit. Like she's maintaining her company's design system. So these are good questions. So one of the things that we've done to get buy-in from other teams is basically to talk about the efficiencies of having a design system and how a lot of the times if we're able to make those decisions on the front end, then that will allow us to move a lot faster. And most of the time, business is not going to argue with efficiencies. Yeah, I'll add to the business and efficiency <laughs> thing. Sometimes it's a harder sell regardless of how much it sounds like it's efficient. Cause I think the one thing that's always debated with efficiency ads coming from a development perspective and the experiences I've had is to gain that efficiency means a lot of effort upfront. And mm -hmm. so if you're at a point where the business feels like we can't sacrifice shipping this next thing that needs to come in the next month, then taking the time to set up the process, to train people on the process and to adopt the actual process in your workflow is something that actually is very hard to get buy-in for. And that's something I've struggled with in the past of like, hey, we want to take time to set up automated testing or automated deployments, and we need to take X number of weeks to figure it out, and then this number of weeks to actually implement it and that sort of stuff. So I would say, even though it sounds nice, it can be a much harder sell. So I think the add-on to that is making it tangible as much as you mm -hmm. can. See if you can get buy-in to do like a week POC and then show hands on or at least a little more tangible what the actual impact becomes. It might even be worth trying to figure out what's the question behind the question. I feel like that's something that I'm constantly trying to figure out. But if other people aren't buying in, why not? Mm -hmm. Is it an efficiency piece? Is it because they feel like they've got to go back and rework all of their existing design components? It might be beneficial to figure out what their sticking point is. That way you can overcome that particular point and address that head on. The second part of our question, how to future-proof your system from stack changes. I guess this is talking about like a dev stack, right? I think we could probably leave that up to our interpretation. I think part of future-proofing is you can't, right? Like you can't future-proof mm -hmm. everything. Like think about how many design systems and tools and things are out now that didn't exist before. But the second piece of that is not letting yourself, in my mind, get too far down technical or design debt, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have that agile mentality of things change and you have to adopt with them. So the pain points I've seen, again, from a development perspective, are teams that are too sunk in. They're too far mm -hmm. gone to be able to see, what's the phrase, to see the 
farm from the field or something. That's not the right <laughs> one, but whatever it is that like, they can't get their head above water to actually think about making changes to work towards the future. So I think being preemptive about that, and a lot of that comes from culture of the company and the teams as well, to make sure that people have freedom to do trainings and to come up with ideas and freedom away from deadlines to be able to continue to develop and evolve their processes to stay up to date. For me, I think a big part of that, regardless design or development to avoid that debt is cultural and accepting that we're going to have to take time to invest in ourselves and our processes. Yeah, that's a great point. I also like the Tennessee metaphor, <laughs> farm from the field. Yeah, yeah, that's not, I can't, you can't see the forest from the trees. There it is. But the Tennessee version is the farm from the field, apparently. We in Tennessee just live in the middle of the forest. That's exactly what it is. Uh, okay, so the third part of that question was, how do you keep your system linked together from design programs to the code? So I've used zero height before, which is fantastic because you can pull in Figma. So it will pull in all of your different components and you can document those if you're looking to make that more of an outward facing piece. A lot of times we still actually just use Figma to document a lot of this stuff. But Storybook is also another great option. And as I mentioned, zero height, you can actually pull in Storybook as part of that zero height style guide. But Storybook is more on the dev side where you're documenting these different components and showing how they all work together. But if you can find ways to tie in your existing code with whatever documentation you're using, hopefully as you update those components within your code, that will also help update your documentation. So I would say as long as you're just doing those two things in tandem, it's a lot easier to keep them in sync. And that, again, I think a lot of that is so cultural, right? How are your teams laid out and divided and what is their communication like to make sure that they are in sync? And that takes some foresight and some effort and planning to make sure that individuals have the capacity and the ability to collaborate with each other as they grow and things change and evolve. I'm glad that you touched on the storybook. It's one of those things that I've heard of several times. I don't know a whole lot about I actually have the tab open and I meant to kind of prompt you to tell mm. us a little bit about storybook. So I'm glad you covered that. Yeah. And actually, if anybody's interested in storybook, I think Emma Bastian has a course on front end masters on using storybook mm. that might be worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely. Next question, actually two of them here again, is from Eric Cabral. This will be after this episode is published, but he is going to join me for the first Twitter space on the Planet Scale account oh, awesome. in a couple of days. So I'm glad that he participated in this, but he said, when do you know you need a design system? Do you start from scratch or do you take an existing one and update it? So I know you talked a little bit about that, but again, what are some of those big call outs or things to be aware of to say, Hey, okay, we're ready for a little more formality or structure around the stuff that we have in terms of design. Yeah. So any project that I do, I'm actually creating a design system along with the design. So if nothing exists, there will be one by the end of the project. And really that just helps keep me accountable as I'm creating the design so that I'm not really starting from scratch every time I start a new page of that project and it all will feel consistent. I need that level of accountability even in my own designs. And plus, it just makes things easier. But I think if you are working across, say, multiple business units, I think once you start to experience that pain of the discrepancies among design pieces and things like that, that it's definitely beneficial to try and implement something across the board. In terms of taking an existing one and updating it, that's always a possibility. So there's a client that we have right now that's trying to implement a design system. And we're starting with Google material design and iterating on top of it to make it our own. And that's worked out really well because the developers are actually using Google material design as a starting point. And so we're both able to iterate off those existing components and just make it feel like it's our own thing. I feel like material design several years ago, I think it kind of took the world by storm from a developer perspective. Like it was so big, obviously for Android and Google-related apps specifically. But that has always been one that I think people have referred to as being kind of top of the line in -hmm. terms of a design system and style guide and stuff to follow. Yeah, I'm not always crazy about the design decisions that they've made in it, but I think the best thing is it does give you a starting point for thinking through all the Mm -hmm. components. And like I mentioned, I can't argue with the fact that it is probably the most well-tested design (laughs) system, especially in terms of accessibility. Absolutely. Cool. We got the last, again, a couple of questions on this tweet as well. This is from codingcat.dev. So Brittany is part of the CodingCat team. And then they have one from their official Twitter handle. They've also been a guest on the podcast. We did a crossover episode with them. 
but they are asking, oh man, I am writing one on visually building them today. So pretty fresh in my mind. So three parts, how do you convince marketing to actually use the system? How do you version? How do you test to make sure everything is working within the system? Well, I think we talked a little bit about convincing. And so this is marketing is who we're addressing in this case, but I think it still goes back to, you have to really show in some tangible way, the benefit of what's there. And if you have something that you've already built or you built a POC and you say, give some numbers behind, I think numbers also make a difference, but just as tangible as you can make it of the difference of why you have what you have, how it's going to make their lives easier, make it make sense for them is always going to be to me, the story I think that needs to be told. We've also had a lot of success in getting buy-in by bringing them into the conversation. So instead of saying, Mm. here's the style guide that you're going to use on everything, (laughs) (laughs) take it and don't leave it. That's a lot harder conversation than if you say, hey, I'm working on this style guide. I love your input. We're using this for products. We would love to see how you can implement some of these pieces for marketing. What use cases are we not thinking through? Help us do this together. And then Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to buy in when they have a seat at the table. Yeah, definitely agree with that. It's much easier to talk with someone than to talk at them or to mm-hmm. tell them what they're going to do. I've been in situations like that in the past where I've been very turned off of someone coming and telling me I'm going to do something a certain way without me being a part of that conversation. Yeah. And that goes with dev too. trying to get dev on board with the mm-hmm. design system is let them have a seat at the table, talk with them about accessibility and yep. all the pieces it just goes so much better. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a second and a third. So the second part is about versioning. Oh, versioning. That's a good question. We haven't used a specific system for versioning, but some of the other design systems I've looked at will even include a change log directly within the Figma file to say that these things have changed. The nice thing about Figma too is it has built-in version control. So you can go back to any point in the history and see what that component was. Obviously, dev will need to be pulled in if you're making changes. And then hopefully those changes will also get reflected within commits and your repository and pull requests and all those good things. Yeah, it's really cool. Dev really kicked off this idea of, hey, we don't need to save multiple files as version one, two, three, four anymore. Talking about Git and then GitHub and all the tools and things that have come around that. And it's really cool to see that concept get applied now in so many different areas. I was talking to a friend of mine who's an engineer and some of the 3d modeling software that they use has that exact same, like you can go back to previous versions and they've got the snapshots and you kind of commit it and check it in and that kind of stuff. So this is, maybe there are some things out there that have more formal commit history type things, but I think in general, we're starting to see that sort of functionality be baked into more and more tools, regardless of them being development related. Yeah. I feel like design's playing catch up when it comes to stuff like Mm -hmm. that, but there is a, app called abstract i think you can go to goabstract.com or something i'll include the link in the show notes but they have a more formal commit type process but that's if you're using sketch and not figma but on everything's felt which is a course (laughs) that james and i are working on there will be visual regression testing with percy and with that you can commit to your repo as you're making changes it'll show you the two different images. So it almost takes a screenshot of the before and the after, and it'll compare those to see if it matches anytime you're making CSS changes. And then that gets committed or it can be committed to your repo. So Mm -hmm. that's cool too. So you have now answered the third part of this maybe is how do you test to make sure everything is working within the system? So I think that's definitely one great way. I mean, the thing that ultimately you're creating the system for is the output, right? And if your Mm -hmm. output looks right, then you have a good sense that the things leading up to that output are at least on the right track. Yeah. So if you're talking about visual regression testing, so what that does is kind of, as I mentioned, it takes a before and an after screenshot and they'll compare the two and it'll flag you if those don't match. And then you can say, oops, I made a mistake or accept the new version. And Percy is a great one. And I think it was the Apple tools would be really good. So the last segment of the episode is picks and plugs, where we pick something that we like and we plug something that we've worked on. So James, do you have any picks and plugs for us? Yeah, so we talked about this at the end of the last episode, but I think we ended up editing out. I have just kind of resided to the fact that I'm going to have to shop women's clothing more often. (laughs) So the origin to this that my family makes fun of me for is I wanted this brown peacoat for a long time and I just couldn't find options in men's clothing. 
And one day at Old Navy, I was there and I saw this glorious <laughs> brown jacket in the women's section. And I was like, no way. It's this like, with you. This fit. Yeah, she was with me. And she scoffed mostly until she saw it on me. And then she was like, this looks really good. But I found this. It was exactly what I was looking for. And it was like 50, 60 bucks or something. Peacoats can easily be $400. Like they're kind of expensive. So anyway, I've always wanted like leggings or shorts that have one of those tight pockets, like leggings that makes more sense. So you put your phone in and it's not going to go anywhere. If I wear just regular gym shorts and run or running shorts with pockets, uh, phone's going to be bouncing around. I don't necessarily know it's not going to fall out. So I usually run with my phone in my hand, which I hate. So we were at Costco, obviously, and we probably went four days last week to Costco for various reasons, but we were in the women's section for leggings and she was looking at them and I was like, those look really nice. I want some. <laughs> and I bought a pair and I ran with them. The pocket was perfect. It's a little bit different because they're high-waisted, which is not something that men usually do. So I kind of <laughs> fold that part down. And then uh, I went back and bought another one. So I've got a black and a gray pair. And I just, the run I did earlier was in the gray pair. And they just, they're warm. They feel really nice. And they have the pocket for phones and other things, whatever you need. I wear shorts on top of these, by the way. So it, it looks like <laughs> not as weird. But anyway, I enjoy it. There's just so many more options for women's clothing. And it makes me really jealous. So yeah, these are Dan Skin brand. I don't know what that brand is, but they're at Costco and they're pretty sweet. So other than that, I will plug my YouTube channel. I mentioned this on the last episode. My numbers have been down, so I'm looking to hopefully kind of do some videos that do better in terms of performance and views and interactions and stuff. I just published one today that has done well, so I've been excited about that on a plugin for your terminal on Mac called fig.io, and it adds autocomplete and IntelliSense right there in your terminal with kind of a pop-up menu type thing, which is really neat. So go and check that out on my YouTube channel, James Q. Quick. And Amy, what are your picks and plugs? So I'm going to pick, it's a neoprene sleeve for my keyboard and my mouse and my trackpad. So I went to Southern Oregon last week. My keyboard is a butterfly keyboard, which I like the keyboard itself, but it's just gotten super sticky. So it's almost unusable to the point where I have to travel with my Apple keyboard. And so this neoprene sleeve is really nice because it just slides in there, but you can also slide in a trackpad and a mouse. So I really enjoyed traveling with that and keeping all that nice and protected and it makes it easy to really create like a portable travel desk anytime I'm not sitting at my actual desk. So my plug, I'm going to pick my YouTube channel as well. I have been challenged with trying to get to 10K ASAP and so I would love your help if you would go to Self Teach Me and subscribe. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. In our next episode, we're going to be talking all about React hooks, the ins and outs, when to use, use effect, use memo, all the good things. We would love it if you would go to your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review only if you liked the episode. But that's how other people find out about the podcast. It helps the algorithm and helps people find us. So be sure to leave a rating and review. And that's all we got. 